0: Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that wishes all the homophobes and transphobes in America a super uncomfortable Pride Month. Okay, so like episode nine, I am starting with the show updates because if I wait until the end of the episode, some of you will miss them because I know you aren't all staying till the bitter end of the show. The first news is that Bitchy History will be transitioning to one episode a week at the beginning of July. Two episodes a week has proven to be an awful lot to keep up with alongside running my research consulting business. And unfortunately, that's the work that pays for this show, along with keeping my credit card companies and not coming for my throat with a knife. The show will still be out on Mondays at 8 a.m. Eastern, but there will not be a Thursday episode going forward. The second announcement is that on June 23rd at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, I will be hosting a live with a few other historians titled History and Drinks. We'll be getting a little bit tipsy talking about history, probably spending some time shit-talking our least favorite historical figures. At least that's my plan. We'll also be open to questions from viewers. So if you have any questions or you just want to observe the chaos of a bunch of drunk historians getting online together, please put this on your calendar and tune in. There's a link to my TikTok account on bitchyhistory.com. All right, now on to episode 10. Today we're taking a step away from the slow pace of going through American History 101 a step at a time for a special Pride episode on the history of queerness in America. Because as much as theocratic fascists like Matt Walsh want to make it seem like the existence of queer people in America is a carefully curated conspiracy caused by the brainwashing powers of Disney, liberal teachers, and, I don't know, Lady Gaga... No, no, really. There's a clip from his show. He doesn't name those three things specifically, but I know that my listeners are smart enough to read between the lines. Well, what's going on is social contagion, a kind of mass hysteria, a group hallucination in effect, but one that is constructed, fabricated. Okay. Oh, this is all intentional. It is social engineering on a scale and at a level previously unknown to mankind. We've seen brainwashing before, but never like this. And never has it started so young. Unfortunately for Matt's conspiracy theory, queer people have always existed. From Alexander the Great to Abu Nuwas, Leonardo da Vinci to James I, the history of queer people stretches through time and around the world. And the names we know are just the ones remarkable enough to be remembered by history, which we know are only a small percentage of any population. Queer people have been there the whole time, and that includes America. Of course, one of the most telling parts of the history of queerness in America can be read in the court records. In fact, throughout history, we can understand a lot of the prevalence of homosexual behavior because of the laws criminalizing it. Though, understandably, having a law against something doesn't always mean it exists. <clears throat> Salem witch trials. <clears throat> no, I. sorry, had a little cough there. But it does seem unlikely that society would spend so much time on laws criminalizing homosexual behavior if it hardly ever occurred. And prosecution for sexual perversions was not uncommon during the 17th and 18th century in America at all. For instance, in 1636, Reverend John Cotton proposed that sexual relations between women should be included in the definition of sodomy for the first time ever. He proposed this wording specifically, Unnatural filthiness to be punished with death, whether sodomy, which is carnal fellowship of man with man or woman with woman, or buggery, which is carnal fellowship of man or woman with beasts or fowls. His version wasn't put into practice until 1656 in the New Haven colony, and even then they took out the explicit reference to lesbianism and replaced it with women changing their natural use to that which is against nature. Much more vague. Probably to keep women from getting any ideas like. Oh, that that was an option this whole time? Hey, Jenny, guess what we could have been doing this whole time. (laughs) On a related note, in 1642, Elizabeth Johnson was fined and whipped for unseemly practices with another maid attempting to do that which man and woman do, which... A, was there not a more succinct way to phrase that? And B, that doesn't leave a lot of room for speculation on what was happening. It was gay. If they'd left it at unseemly practices with another maid, maybe you could argue that they were, I don't know, holding an unauthorized book club or something. But this, this was definitely gay. Similarly, in 1649, Sarah Norman and Mary Hammond of Plymouth Colony are taken to court for lewd behavior, each with the other upon a bed. Again, doesn't leave much room for debate on what kind of activity was occurring here. Due to her younger age, Mary was only admonished by the court, while Sarah stood trial and was convicted in 1650. She was also required to acknowledge her unchaste behavior publicly. Sarah was also charged with diverse lascivious speeches by her also spoke, which... Uh, was dirty talk illegal in Puritan society, or am I misreading the meaning behind that phrase? Interestingly enough, that case was a bit larger than just Mary and Sarah. Another individual was accused as well, a man by the name of Teague Jones. All three were accused by a single man named Richard Barry. Barry eventually retracted his accusation from Jones, and three years later, both Barry and Jones were prosecuted for homosexuality and ordered to, quote, part their uncivil living together. So there was some drama going on in the queer community of Plymouth Colony in the mid-17th century. (laughs) I don't know what that drama was, but I would pay to find out. In 1677, the sodomy trial of Nicholas Sension of Windsor, Connecticut, revealed that the man in question had actually been quite open about his desire for men throughout the last 30 years of his life. It was the act of homosexual sex rather than the desire or identity which was punished in this case. And in 1756, a Baptist minister named Stephen Gorton got suspended from his position for unchaste behavior with fellow men when in bed with them. Again, very, very specific on the accusation there. In an interesting turn of events, Gorton confesses, and then his congregation votes to reinstate him? A far cry from the Baptist church I grew up in, the youth pastor told us regularly that gay people would burn in hell for eternity. So clearly gay people did exist, and while some went to jail or were executed during this period, undoubtedly far more were able to live their lives in relative privacy and peace, though hardly out and proud in the modern sense. Records exist from letters and diaries, both written by queer individuals and heterosexuals who had interactions with the queer community over these two centuries. The number of examples of this spikes in the 19th century, while the records of arrest and punishment seem to dwindle, but not the records of their lives. So for the moment, let's move away from the court transcripts and talk about the people who actually got away with being openly gay, at least to some degree. Let's start all the way back in 1607 with the founding of Jamestown. Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement in the American colonies, was named after King James I, described by historian Michael B. Young as the most prominent homosexual figure in the early modern period. He is thought to have had more than one male lover, most notably George Villiers, who he eventually made the Earl and later the Duke of Buckingham. In fact, he is said to have been quite openly affectionate with Villiers in front of many courtiers, even though James was publicly quite loud in his hatred of homosexuality. Reminder, the King James version of the Bible where suddenly Sodom becomes a story about gay sex, that's that's this King James. It's kind of weird how that stereotype about the loudest homophobes actually being the gayest people in existence always seems to be true somehow. One of the popular pithy statements at the time that compared James to his Tudor predecessor, Elizabeth I, declared, Elizabeth was king, now James is queen. One contemporary poet put it a little more bluntly. It is well known that the king of England fucked the Duke of Buckingham. So in effect, the earliest founding of our country is just... Flamingly homosexual. In another case, in 1698, a French explorer among the Illinois Indian tribes remarked on the number of men living as women among the tribes and the prevalence of homosexual activity. Only he used a French term to refer to these queer members of the tribe, which is considered offensive to these groups today, so I'll refrain from repeating it. Two-spirit people were what he was describing here. They were found in most tribes across North America, in fact. These were individuals who were biologically male, but dressed and lived as women. In most tribes, they were highly valued parts of society, often serving as spiritual leaders in some tribes. For instance, Tish was the keeper of the Bade tradition, a male-bodied person in the Crow community who lived their daily life in a feminine role. Earning their name, finds them and kills them in a fight against the Lakota, Oztish was a revered member of the tribe who had a lodge, a family, and was considered a leader amongst their people. And then we get to the American Revolution. There's one particularly famous example of queerness during this period, and that is, of course, Alexander Hamilton, the bisexual whore. He writes to his friend, John Lawrence, at one point that, "'I wish, my dear Lawrence, that it might be in my power by action rather than words to convince you that I love you. And you know the opinion I entertain of mankind and how much it is my desire to preserve myself free from particular attachments and to keep my happiness independent of the caprice of others. You should not have taken advantage of my sensibility to steal into my affections without my consent.'" If that wasn't romance, I don't know what romance is. Of course, then this letter gives us a very strange aside in which Hamilton asks Lawrence to help him find a wife, knowing that it will be difficult for Lawrence to find one that meets Hamilton's expectations. Hamilton ends up telling him, To excite their emulation, it will be necessary for you to give an account of the lover, his size, make, quality of mind, and body, achievements, expectations, fortune, etc. In drawing my picture, you will no doubt be civil to your friend. At uh, Hamilton, quick question. Why is it that Lawrence apparently knows so much about your size, make, quality of mind, and body? Just, just a question. And yes, I fully admit that during this time period, men wrote in a decidedly more flowery style than they would with men today. But there's not a heck of a lot of ways to explain that particular exchange that isn't just a little bit gay. Just, you know... Phrasing! I could go on about the letters between Hamilton and Lawrence at length because I am engulfed with laughter at the audaciousness of them every time I read them, but nothing says I can't do another episode on the queerness of the American Revolutionary period in the future, and I certainly will. I was planning to discuss Baron von Steuben today, but honestly, he deserves basically his own episode. Suffice to say that he used to have pantsless parties at his house with the male soldiers and was for the 18th century anyway, so out of the closet that I am shocked. Whenever people want to get all toxically masculine about the military, I just remind myself that the father of the American military was a very gay man. And then the American Revolution is over, but the gay party is not. In 1798, a Frenchman living in Philadelphia named Moreau de Saint-Marie writes that the women he has met are not at all strangers to being willing to seek unnatural pleasures with persons of the same sex. The rest of the letter is highly misogynistic, but Moreau was French, so I'm not exactly shocked by that. And this is one that is just really hard to talk about with a straight face, so I apologize if I start laughing in the middle of this delivery. In 1826, Jeff Withers and James Hammond, two young Southerners who would eventually go on to become prominent citizens, had a tendency to write playfully and graphically erotic letters about their past involvement with each other. I would read some of these letters out on the air, but as much as I enjoy cursing on this show, I don't know if I can read too many lines like, The extravagant delight of poking a writhing bedfellow with your long flesh and pole" with any sort of seriousness. These letters make most romance novels look downright puritanical. You have been warned should you decide to look them up for yourself. I take no responsibility for this. And then in 1857, Charlotte Cushman, an actress famous for playing male roles, begins living with a sculptor named Emma Stebbins. It was the last in Cushman's long sequence of relationships with women and the longest lasting. The two remained together until Cushman's death in 1876. Stebbins was famous for such statues as the Angels of the Waters in New York Central Park, which was the first public art commission ever awarded to a woman in New York City. In one 1858 letter, Cushman alludes to marrying Stebbins, noting, Do you not know that I am already married and wear the badge upon the third finger of my left hand? A clipping of Stebbins' obituary from the New York Tribune contained this statement. "Miss Stebbins' name is indissolubly linked with that of her friend Charlotte Cushman, with whom she formed a close intimacy soon after taking up her residence in Rome. They lived together, traveled together, and worked together for many years. It was one of those romantic and abiding attachments which indicate a genius for friendship. Miss Stebbins watched over her friend in her late illness and became her loving and appreciative biographer. Since the death of the great actress, her own health has been declining. Yeah, sure, they were just friends. And of course, some queer people never got the chance to formalize their relationships or live together. In 1859, Addie Brown and Rebecca Primus— Two African-American women living in the North began their loving correspondence. About 150 letters written by Brown to Primus exist today in the Connecticut Historical Society's collection, many containing very amorous statements. Their early letters contained sentiments such as, I never shall love any person as I do you, and wishing that I was in your loving arms and you would be imprinting sweet kisses. They lived separately during this correspondence, but Addie often thought of the life they might have had if one of them was a man. Addie wrote, it seems I can see you now casting those loving eyes at me. If you was a man, what would things come to? And in 1890, Frances Willard, a white temperance activist, wrote in her autobiography, "...the loves of women for each other grow more numerous each day, and I have pondered much why these things were. That so little should be said about them surprises me, for they are everywhere. In these days, when any capable and careful woman can honorably earn her own support, there is no village that has not its examples of two hearts in council, both of which are feminine." Other partners had many, many long years together. For nearly 40 years, Hull House founder and Nobel Peace Prize winner Jane Addams maintained a romantic relationship with Mary Rosette Smith. Addams and Smith traveled together, shared the same room and bed, and owned property together. Addams consistently addressed Smith as dearest and used phrases such as, I am yours till death. Mary Rosette Smith passed away in 1934 due to pneumonia, and many at Hull House were deeply concerned about how Jane Addams would continue without her. Reformer Alice Hamilton wrote to her sister expressing her concern, I told Mary that she must get well, that she could live on without J.A., but J.A. could not live without her. Her concerns were proven correct when Jane Addams passed away only a year later in 1935. Jane once wrote these words for Mary, The mine and thine of wedded folk is often quite confusing, and sometimes when they use the hours it sounds almost amusing, but you and I may well defy both married folk and single to do as well as we have done, the mine and thine, to mingle. Wow, uh, sorry, I got a little emotional there, had to go and get myself a tissue. In 1895, Angelina Weld Grimke, distantly related to the Grimke sisters of abolitionism fame, was a young woman who would become a celebrated poet and important forerunner of the Harlem Renaissance. At the age of 16, Grimke wrote to a friend, Mary Edith Carn. "'Oh, Mamie, if you only knew how my heart beats when I think of you. I know you are too young now to become my wife, but I hope, darling, that in a few years you will come to me and be my love, my wife, how my brain whirls, how my pulse leaps with joy and madness when I think of those two words, my wife.'" Angelina's poetry was marked by her desire to love and be loved by another woman, writing words like, Little lady, coyly shy, with deep shadows in each eye, cast by lashes soft and long, tender lips just bowed for song, and I oft have dreamed the bliss of the nectar in one kiss. In 1896, Sarah Orne Jewett publishes Martha's Lady, a short story celebrating the redemptive power of love between women. Many of her works featured relationships between women, and Jewett's letters and diaries reveal that as a young woman, Jewett herself had close relationships with several other women. Jewett later established a close friendship with the writer Annie Adams Fields and her husband, publisher James Fields. After the sudden death of James Fields in 1881, Jewett and Annie Fields lived openly together for the rest of Jewett's life in what was then termed a Boston marriage. I could go on to add countless other names to this list, but my point is made. Throughout American history, from the native tribes who were here long before European settlers came to these shores, from the first settlement to the men who helped found this country in every decade since, queer people have been a part of the story of America. We aren't new. We didn't spring from the rainbow merchandise on shelves at Target. We've always been here, whether behind the scenes, training the American military to win a war with Great Britain, or winning Nobel Peace Prizes for activism. The history of America would look far different without us. Those who ask why there are so many more of us now than there were in past generations are missing the point. We have the freedom now to be ourselves, to publicly love and live as our true authentic selves in a way that society denied our previous generations." The ancestors of the queer community were lost to silence and societal shame. The elders of our community were lost to AIDS and gay bashing. My generation is one of the first to be able to live openly. So yeah, you see more of us than you did in the 1950s. Get used to it. And as a special message for men like Matt Walsh and other conservative commentators like him, there's no brainwashing going on. I know it would make you feel better about the thoughts in your own mind if you could blame it on Disney and Rainbow Capitalism and drag queen story hours, but those thoughts are your own. I recommend therapy, rather than spewing all that self-hatred out into the world. On another note, though vaguely related, I got into a scuffle with your average white straight male on TikTok last week who was absolutely sure that I was only a feminist because I'm too butch for men to find attractive – First of all, I am by no means butch, and secondly, as I told him, I'm a lesbian, dingus, which kind of means I don't care what men think of me anyway, and it definitely has no impact on my feminism. But please, go tell Gloria Steinem that only butch women can be feminists. You'll get a laugh, I guarantee it. But to get to the point, I told this story to a few friends, and one of them decided that I'm a lesbian dingus was the most hilarious response I had ever made online, and has made me a graphic that I can use. I'm considering making some merch for the show using it. Would anyone but me wear that? I know this was a slightly shorter episode than normal, but there's a compelling reason for that. Thursday's episode is an hour long. On Thursday, I'm having Amanda Thompson from the TikTok channel Yester Queers on the show to talk about the history of drag in America. So you're not just going to be listening to me talk for a whole hour. It's going to be a fascinating episode, and I know that because it's already been recorded. Thanks for tuning in to hear me bitch about history, and I will see you back here on Thursday.